And I think it's also about my dad having this idea stuck in his head of this perfect bite of pecan pie goo. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Today on Schmaltzy, author Shifra Kornfeld. Shifra is a Tel Aviv-based writer who was born and raised in Jerusalem. She was the winner of the Israeli version of the reality show Big Brother. Her 2012 novel, The Second Half of the Night, was inspired by her childhood in an ultra-Orthodox community. We'll hear Shifra's original live story, and then she'll meet me in the studio for a chat. Here's Shifra from the stage at Jewish Food Society's first-ever virtual schmaltzy salon event. When I was 12, I began a mission to bake my dad the perfect kosher pecan pie. Now, growing up in Jerusalem, you'd think kosher baked goods would be easy enough to come by, and they are. In fact, finding a non-kosher bakery would be really difficult. But for my dad, just kosher wasn't enough. He wasn't always orthodox. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri, where his parents raised him with a very strong Jewish identity, but no religious practice. Then in his 20s, he made aliyah and became a Balchuva. Being a Balchuva usually means taking things way too far. So if, for most people, just having a K stamped on the package is enough, my father would practically have to know the guy who sifted the flour, ensuring no bugs made it into the pie crust. So as you can imagine, finding ourselves in a coffee shop that was kosher enough to eat in was quite rare. But when we did, he would always very quickly scan the menu, and if they had it, he would order pecan pie. Or actually, it was pie pecan. This always tickled my dad, the way Hebrew flips everything around. I would watch his face from the minute he ordered till the minute he took his first bite. I was fascinated by the change that came over my very serious rabbi dad. For a few minutes, he turned into a kid waiting for his favorite dessert, this taste from home that he missed. It was an inevitable disappointment. They always got it wrong. They either served it with a dollop of whipped cream instead of the perfect scoop of vanilla ice cream. The filling was too sweet or sticky or curdled, and the crust, well, it was too thick, soggy, had sugar in it. I remember the time someone added chocolate chips to the filling. This practically ruined his day. He would always unhappily finish the slice, then drop the fork, brush the crumbs off his beard, shake his head, and say, this may be pie pecan, but it is not pecan pie. Balchuva literally means he who's returned. But to me, it always seemed like he'd left, like he went from being this free spirit and a wanderer, someone who had it in him to propel himself all the way from St. Louis, Missouri, to the old city of Jerusalem, 
But then it seemed like he stopped changing, like he just stayed there. He became a very serious man in a black suit with a black hat and a long beard who looked just like any other man in a black suit and a black hat and a long beard walking down the street of Jerusalem. Except for once a year, my grandparents would come and they would bring with them these duffel bags full of America, things like Ziploc bags and Fruit of the Loom underwear, um, speed stick deodorant, uh, something called my grandmother called bug juice, which is a, a powder you can add to water to make a very sweet juice. Um, then there was my dad's favorite, Fakin Bacon. It's a jar with these little tiny crunchy, salty, artificially smoky bits inside. And my dad would save them and then sprinkle the smallest amount on top of his scrambled eggs, treating it the way you would treat saffron, like it's this rare, exotic delicacy. All of this plasticky American stuff seemed to delight my dad, making me wonder if under that black suit there was another secret adventurous dad waiting for me to discover. Then one day, I went snooping through a drawer I had no business going through. And I found my father's high school yearbook, where I was surprised to discover what a fun, popular guy he seemed to have been, with girls writing him messages, dotting the eyes with little hearts. But the big thing I found in that drawer were these pages, printed on a typewriter, his diary. I knew I shouldn't, but I read them. And in them, he talked about feeling restless. He described waking up one morning and feeling like he just had to leave the house and took a bag on his back and went out and started walking. One passage really stopped me in my tracks. He wrote, as I was walking, I saw a sign there. That sign said, no trespassing. But the other side of the sign said nothing. Now, that side was meant for you and me. My mind was blown. I felt like here I had proof that this secret other dad did exist. This guy who would walk right past a no trespassing sign and keep walking. I had to meet this guy. Or at least, bake him a pie. So, I decided I would prepare it for his birthday. Um, this is when I turned to The Joy of Cooking, my Bible, and realized that uh, the recipe was simple enough, but it required this one ingredient I couldn't quite wrap my mind around. It was this thing called corn syrup. And you have to remember, I'm 12. It's Jerusalem in the 90s. Uh, the internet is basically a rumor. So in my mind, this could be anything like yellow ketchup even. And what would it be doing in this dessert my dad loved so much? Luckily, a friend's mother helped me solve the mystery and hooked me up with a bottle of corn syrup and kindly offered me her kitchen where I could prepare the pie and keep it a surprise. So I followed the recipe exactly and lovingly, so excited to be able to present my dad with this dessert that he craved my entire life. And then waited just enough for it to cool down so I could walk home. I marched into the kitchen only to discover that my mother had prepared my dad a birthday surprise of her own 
and baked him a chicken dinner. Orthodox Jews observe a strict separation between meat and dairy. So if you're having meat for dinner, which apparently now we were, there is no way you can have dairy in your dessert. Now, because I'd been following the recipe so exactly, because I wanted to present my dad with the perfect pie, I used butter, not margarine. So now here I am standing with a warm dairy pie in my hands, the smell of chicken filling the house, and the only thing that 12-year-old me could think of doing is to get rid of it. I'm halfway to the trash when my dad walks in. Is that pecan pie? He was so surprised. I said, yes, Ab, it is, but I use butter, so it's milchik, and Ima made chicken, so we're having fleshiks, and we can't have it for dessert, and I really wanted to surprise you. And my dad takes a minute to contemplate this, and then his face breaks into a huge grin, and he says, let's have dessert before dinner. It was an ingenious solution. This way, we could have our pie and eat it, too. I don't know how much room we had left for chicken after indulging in what turned out to be a delicious pie, not a pie pecan, but a true pecan pie. And this began a tradition where I baked this pie for him every year. Those words about the other side of the no trespassing sign stuck with me long after childhood and found their way into my book, which was already in print when I realized I need to call my dad. I have some explaining to do. Yes, this is something I do a lot. I screw up and then I call and I explain and I apologize. So Abba, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, so here I called my dad and I said, listen, I read your diary so many years ago and I really shouldn't have and not only did I read it I stole that beautiful sentence that you wrote about reaching the no trespassing sign and then just walking on the other side of the sign and then my dad did something very unexpected he laughed see those words that meant so much to me the ones I thought were the secret code to him he never wrote those words. Woody Guthrie did. Their lyrics to a song, This Land Is Your Land, many of you probably know it. But I don't care that he didn't write those words because finding them that day in the drawer, it meant something to me. And even though it took me 25 years to come clean about it, it brought me closer to him. My dad and I, we do many things very differently but we still love dessert before dinner. Hi, Shifra. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me here. It's our pleasure. Now that we know you baked a few pecan pies yourself, why do you think nobody in Israel could make a proper pecan pie? 
I think that this was true for the years that I'm, you know, telling telling the story about like the late 80s, early 90s. It was really hard to find things that weren't local. And the kosher thing. Bakeries stuck to very basic things that everyone loved, like, you know, rugala and um, barekas and just everything was very basic, I think, when I was growing up. So pecan pie was so way past basic that, you know, the the person who decided to put it on the menu was probably a very aspirational baker. So they necessarily wanted to embellish. So that's, you know, that's where the chocolate chips come in or using honey instead of corn syrup, uh, which, of course, to my dad was, you know, an abomination. But like I said, corn syrup was a very exotic ingredient. Um in in Israel, you know, in those years. So I just think it was, it's like a cultural misunderstanding. And I think it's also about my dad having this idea stuck in his head of this, you know, like perfect bite of, you know, pecan pie goo that he missed. And, and no one in Jerusalem was into goo, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a strong goo movement. No, not, not in those years. <laughs> Well, this year, we are in a pandemic. Things were a little bit different. Were there challenges that you faced to like get everything for the pie this year? Were you able to get it to your dad? Well, that's actually a really good question. This year was very different. My dad and I live farther away than I'd like, and not even necessarily um, geographically, just, you know, I, uh, he lives in a settlement in Gush Etzion. I live in Tel Aviv. Technically, it's probably, you know, an hour in a car, but it grows farther. And we haven't had pecan pie in a few years. When I moved to Tel Aviv for the first couple of years, I actually would go to a kosher coffee shop down the street and use their kitchen to bake the pie and, you know, like bring it over in, in a tinfoil pan so that it would be appropriate uh, for my dad because my kitchen isn't kosher anymore. This year was actually a sad year uh, when I came to visit my dad. The one time that I actually did manage to come visit him uh, was when his father passed away. So definitely less, you know, um, pecan pies. And it's COVID, so we were sitting outdoors with masks on our face. So everything just feels a little distant. You were raised in a religious community. Mm -hmm. Walk us through your decision to become secular. I love that you call it a decision um, because I think many people uh, have this idea in their mind that, you know, religion is discipline and then leaving religion is necessarily a rebellion or a, a loss of values and which it most, you know, definitely isn't. It's just a different choice. For me, it was a very long process. It was a very um, thoughtful process, and I think that one day someone asked me if I was religious. I was, you know, I was 20. I was in the army at this point. I, I was doing a lot of things that religious girls don't do, but I still considered myself religious. And then someone asked me if I was religious, and I said yes, because that was my automatic 
response. And then that yes sort of rang in my ears and, and I kept, you know, like, f- like feeding back into my brain. And I'm like, that's not right. You know, there you know, any religious person asked, you know, about me, if they knew everything I thought and, and did, would not sign off on that. Yes. And I think that was like a very big awakening where I realized that I'm not living in accordance to my beliefs or, you know, my my thoughts. And then I slowly um, slid into uh, Mm. a more fitting lifestyle. And what was your family's reaction? Interestingly enough, I was probably the last person in my family, maybe not the last. My dad's religious and my older brother is religious, but uh, the rest of us are not. And it took me a while to to leave religion. There were there were a lot of things I loved about it, and there were a lot of parts of it that served me. And it took me a while to let go of them um, when I realized that you know this just this isn't my community anymore, and this isn't you know the way I want uh, to live. So hmm. at the point where I stopped practicing uh, mitzvot. My uh, most of my family was already secular, so it, it was easy in that respect. I will say mm-hmm. that my dad is, you know, heartbroken probably till this day, um, and I'm sure that it isn't easy for him. Did you ever have a specific conversation with your dad about your choice? Yes, yes, I did. I had m- actually many conversations. And I think one of the biggest points that we would argue about had to do with something called respect. And I think that a lot of religious people expect uh, people to respect them by, you know, wearing the right clothes when you come over, um, only showing up on Shabbat. If you're going to come over on Shabbat, not to do it in a car and you know, the idea of respect being um, when you come to me, be like me. And I felt there was no way he was going to ever see my true self if I only ever came to him dressed the way he wanted me to be. And that respect has to be reciprocal. Respect has to be being able to see who I am even after I changed and being able to accept, you know, the the person I'm becoming and not just requesting me to always stay exactly at the last point I was when I left. So it's, like I said, also, this is definitely an ongoing process and it's work. I do think that we have a mutual decision to stay in each other's lives, even when it's difficult, even when we're not what the other one imagined. As you so eloquently put it, your relationship is ongoing, how it's moving and changing. And But how would you characterize the relationship today? It's distant. It's painful. But it's there's something about uh, the the rules of religion are, are set in place to make sure that religious communities don't leak <laughs> outward. And they work. And the rules are, you know, dine with the people who eat your food and spend your weekend with the people who live near you. And these rules do not 
facilitate staying close with someone who doesn't keep them. So unless everyone else around you is bending themselves to your rules, it creates distance and, and it's difficult. But again, maybe, you know, this this whole, the, the choice to tell this story at this time um, after this long year is also a way of reaching out and saying, there are many aspects to us and you know like maybe I'm trying to evoke the the man who who loved the Woody Guthrie lyrics so much he put it in his journal you know yeah I mean essentially you and your dad made opposite life choices Mm. he became more religious and you became less and maybe that has created a unique bond or, or understanding between you two Yeah, so that's something I have said to him when he expressed, you know, his disappointment that none of us followed in his footsteps. And I said to him, you know, we all followed in your footsteps. You were the person who wasn't going to accept the answers that someone else offered. And you went on, you know, a search for your own answers. And that's exactly what we did. We followed your path of, you know, seeking our own path. So he maybe laughed, but I don't know if he really accepted that. I really do think that there's a reason all eight of us grew up to be uh, curious, like people who won't uh, accept simple answers and will definitely go and look for better ones. Uh, We were raised like that. What gave you the impression that there was something more to your dad and his past life as a wanderer, as you say in the story? Did you have this feeling about him even before you discovered the yearbook and the diary? Yeah, my dad's a cool guy. He's He has that very serious, strict, rule-loving aspect to him, definitely. But he's also the guy who plays the banjo on Motzei Shabbat. Uh, and he has a very whimsical side to him that is, I think, is expressed a lot through music. We spoke in English, which was very different. So there were, when my dad wanted to read us books, he read us The Wizard of Oz and um, Mark Twain. So these were a little different than the, you know, like the, the stories of the sages that my friends were reading. So there were, you know, little cracks for us to to peek through and and see that he was different and he came from you know, a different place. And that was always very intriguing. Why do you think this search to know more about your dad's past self was important to you? Well, growing up in Israel as a child of immigrants is complicated. There are a lot of aspects of uh, like Israeli culture that I don't get, or maybe I'm learning now uh, through my daughters. And I wanted a, a touch with my culture, and that came with learning more about my dad's past. Where he came from was my story, and I wanted to connect to that. Even using Joy of Cooking as my cooking Bible was a way of connecting to that because I could have used Israeli cookbooks, and that would have been a lot easier. I wouldn't have had to convert temperatures, and I wouldn't have had to go looking for 
strange ingredients or read shocking recipes like you know, rabbit or things that, you know, a little <laughs> religious girl should never know exist. But I, my grandmother gave me the joy of cooking and I wanted to connect to that. So I think it was, you know, part of trying to figure out what my heritage is. You touched on this for a moment, but I want to, to go back and ask you, how do you approach religion and Jewish heritage with your own children now? It's something I'm forming. It's constantly changing. We, step, of course, celebrate all the holidays and have our little ceremonies around them. I have a beautiful um, menorah. I inherited from my grandma, my dad's mother, uh, a be- beautiful wooden menorah, and uh, we bring we pull it out every Hanukkah. And because they're part of the Israeli education system, they have loads of holiday stories and songs, and it's it's a bit of a back and forth between what they bring home, which is new to me, and what I bring from my home. And it's a negotiation between my desire to sometimes just, you know, like fall off the map and pretend like like I'm not connected to anything. <laughs> and then the, the conflicting desire to be completely a part of whatever is going on. But I think the nice thing about living in Israel is that whether you choose to celebrate or not, it will be around you. So we own a sukkah, and some years I built it, and then this year I didn't feel like building it, but everyone around us did. So you'll be part of the holiday whether you choose to or not. Do you feel grateful in a way for being part of these two worlds, for being you know, raised in a religious way? Now you're not, clearly those two parts of you are, are still your identity. 100%. I love the way I was raised, and I love uh, having had the choice and the chance to uh, decide how I want to live. And I think we recognize each other, people who've made big changes. I think there's something you see in a person, and knowing that big changes can be made is also very exciting. I think it means that I know that who I am now isn't uh, a binding commitment. I can rethink things. I I can be convinced. I love that. I love talking to another person and having a chance to hear them and realizing there is something to their perspective that I can adopt. I think it's it's a beautiful angle on the world, and I think more people should adopt it. Thank you so much, Shifra, for sharing your story, sharing these thoughts and very personal reflections on your family relationships and your childhood. I definitely learned a lot and think I'll have also a lot to think about. Thank you. And I hope that there is a great pecan pie in your immediate future. Amen. (laughs) Just a quick reminder. We want to hear from you. Drop us a note at hi at jewishfoodsociety.org and tell us who you want to tell a schmaltzy story on the show. Or maybe you've got a great story to tell. 
Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Also, we're still a little new around here. Be sure to follow and rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show. Schmalti is produced and edited by Freetime Media. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell.